Okay, so I'm going to talk about something a little bit more worldly, uh, which is who gets access to university and what happens to students when they do go to university from uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Do yell at the back if you can't hear, because I'm conscious there's noise outside. Um, so most of us will be um, extremely familiar with the idea of who goes to university and the socioeconomic divide in who goes to university. But uh, a series of my collaborators from various institutions around the place um, uh, have been working on um, a number of different projects trying to explore uh, different aspects of who goes to university, uh, the barriers to getting to university, and more recently, what happens during the university experience and beyond. Um, the motivation for the work, if you like, is to think about the policy levers that we might be able to pull in order to uh, level the playing field somewhat. And what does level the playing field mean will become apparent as you go through the talk. Um, I think this is a pretty timely moment to be discussing these things because I think one of the confusions about the current public debate about higher education is that people are not clear about uh, the causes of what we see at the end of the day, which is a very, very wide socioeconomic gap in the likelihood of going to university. And because people aren't clear about the causes, some of the policy solutions that are being proposed really do risk actually making the whole situation worse. And I'll go through the talk and kind of explain what I mean by that. So let's start with um, some basic facts, if you like, and then we'll discuss what they mean. There are, as I'm sure everybody in the room is aware, very large socioeconomic gaps in terms of children's attainment as they go through the school system. So in fact, actually technically, even before they go through the school system, when you, if you uh, assess children, I'm not saying it's a good idea, but if you do assess children at the age of three or five, when they arrive at the school system, you'd still find large socioeconomic gaps in many, many measures of school readiness or, or cognition. Um, and those gaps actually widen as those children pass through the system. And at the end of the system, when you've had all those years in education, um, you still end up in the situation at the end of the day where if you go and look at an elite university, or indeed any university, you still have the likelihood of going to university being much, much greater for uh, students from more advantaged backgrounds. And this is obviously crucial to our story about the likelihood of education specifically education being a route for social mobility. We talk about it, we assume that education is a route for social mobility, and if, on the face of it, it seems obvious that it would be. Clearly, it is a route for someone to achieve well at school, go to university, and get a good job. But the problem is, is what does the data tell us about the reality of what's actually happening? So this slide might be obvious or known to you even, which is uh, going from left to right, we have um, uh, the lowest socioeconomic quintile, so these are students from the poorest households moving to the right to those here from the richest households. The blue bars show the um, higher education participation rate, the uh, red burgundy bars um, show the participation rate for uh, students at high status institutions. Why are we using high status institutions? It'll become apparent later when we look at outcomes from institutions. Uh, but we've taken what we think is a relatively agnostic view on what constitutes a high status institution and it's defined in this context as uh, any institution that either is in the Russell Group or has equivalent status in the, as the Russell Group in terms of research ranking. We have tested what we're looking at here when you use different forms of metrics and obviously depending on what you use you get slightly different results but actually remarkably similar in terms of the pattern that you see 
Um, broadly speaking, poorer students much less likely to go to an elite institution. And these are the kinds of gaps we're talking about. So a 37 percentage point gap in the likelihood of going to university, comparing those at the top of the distribution to the bottom in terms of socioeconomic background. So massive. And I think the public is probably quite aware of this, and certainly politicians are aware of this. And from that, you might conclude that the first thing we should be doing is really hammering home to universities the need to level this out, to get the proportion going to university up at the bottom end of the socioeconomic distribution. What's less well known is this slide. Um, what we do here is, this is the raw gap, so you'll recognise the numbers, 37 percentage points, uh, 24 percentage points gap in the likelihood of going to a, a high status university. So that's what it looks like when you saw it on the previous chart. That's just the raw gap. And then what we try and say is, okay, can we explain that gap? And I don't mean justify it, I just mean literally explain it with the data. So if you add in to the model children's age seven test scores, what you're then asking is taking two kids with similar attainment at age seven, what's the likelihood of going to university? There's still a big gap. And then you can do the same, taking two children who are quite similar in terms of achievement age 11 and ask what the gap is. Gap is obviously coming down, so less of a socioeconomic gap given how well they're achieving at age 11. But this is the bit you obviously will be interested in. If you take account of their GCSE or their A-level grades, yeah, but importantly just their GCSEs, and you compare students with similar GCSE grades, there is no socioeconomic gap in terms of going to university at all. There's a tiny weeny one that's insignificant when you at A-level. There is still a gap in terms of going to an elite university um, and so there's still an argument there I think to say well what that means is that taking two very similar children somehow uh, even if they've got the high achievement at 16 they're not going to an elite university and we need to wonder why. We need action on the part of elite institutions to get that down to zero but as you notice it's not a huge number. And the point about this slide is that when we're thinking about solutions, we can't just launch straight into, let's do something at the higher education end, because this socioeconomic gap is, is emerging and, and widening throughout the school system. And of course, the result of that is, is that kids are not getting the attainment they need to get into university. I mean, of course, you could say, well, admit students irrespective of their prior achievement, and that might solve the problem. So that is a policy solution, potentially. But then you would also have to be aware of what that would mean in terms of the support those students would need whilst, whilst in higher education. And also, if that is your solution, at least acknowledge that that's what you're doing, as opposed to, at the moment, there's a tendency to talk about the barriers to higher education as though there was a very big socioeconomic gap for kids who are equally well qualified at, at GCSE and A-level, and there isn't. Okay, so what happens next? It's not enough to get into university anyway. Clearly, how you progress through the system matters. Um, so what do we know from the data? We know that once you're there, students from poorer backgrounds are more likely to drop out, less likely to complete, those are not quite the same thing, less likely to, to get a top grade. Um, and what we're saying here is it's not just because those students are uh, less well qualified on entry, it's also taking students with similar background. Now this to me does seem to point the finger, if you like, to use that expression, at universities, because this is going on as the student progresses through the institution and might suggest that there's some 
uh, work to be done, if you like, to support students whilst at university to ensure that those who are coming in from poor backgrounds but with the same level of attainment achieve as well as their peers. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that universities are doing things you know, badly or wrong that this occurs. For example, dropout may be happening because of lack of financial support for students and the fact that poor students have to work more. So I'm not suggesting that it's the, the responsibility of universities that's caused this, but nonetheless, this is something that perhaps the university sector could actually do something about, thinking about the progression of their students from poor backgrounds. And then I'm going to show you some disclaimers which you probably won't get to read, but are available. And the main point of them is to say that the data we're about to use is from HMRC and from the Student Loan Company, uh, but the work that we do is our own and they take no responsibility for the results. So, um, having said that, what do we do? What we wanted to do was look at the outcomes from university. So, not just who goes, not just what happens to them while they're progressing through the system, but also what happens to them after they've left their institution. Um, um, in particular, what we know is that, again, despite discourse in the media to a different effect, the average return, the average uh, wage premium for a graduate has not fallen despite the expansion of higher education. Um, so how do we square that with stories of unemployed graduates or graduates with very um, low-skilled jobs, graduates with low pay? Well, the reason why people can both believe that graduates are not doing as well as they used to, but also we know that they are, is because the variation in the outcomes experienced by graduates has increased. It used to be that describing a graduate made sense. This, a graduate was a thing and their outcomes in uh, the labour market were quite similar. Um, increasingly, that's not actually the way we can think about it because higher education's expanded and there's so many different types of institution and different degree subjects that to talk about a graduate as though a graduate was just a thing doesn't make much sense anymore. And that's what we were interested in looking at. For the data nerds amongst you, um, we were looking at universities going through the system uh, in the late 90s and 2000s. Uh, we're then observing them in the labour market in 2012-13. So obviously this is after the crash and things are just starting to pick up a little bit at that point. We don't have the population of graduates. Um, we will do, but we don't have at the moment. So we've only got a 10% subsample. I mean, it still gives us you know, three quarters of a million students, but um, we don't have the full sample. Um, and in fact, that's partly why we can do the modelling we do, because the numbers aren't too big. Um, and the data that we're actually going to look at when we focus on graduates only are 260,000 students. Okay, so what did we find? So some things are reassuring. Um, it's still true that graduates are more likely to be in work than non-graduates, as you would hope and expect. It's still true that they earn more than non-graduates, again, as you would hope and expect. Um, and indeed, you know, non-graduates in particular really risk having very low or, or no earnings during this period. And just to be clear on this point, this applies to males and females. This is not a story about how non-graduate women are out of the labour market. It applies to both. So the, uh, the protection that you get from a degree is still very evident in the data. And that's why social mobility that focuses on ensuring that students from poor backgrounds do get to university is still really critical because it will make a difference to their lives long term. Um, and then you can see differences uh, between male graduates and non-graduates, female graduates and uh, non-graduates. Um, notice these are numbers that you may not recognise because you think surely graduates earn more than that. Um, 
they're medians so that's the first thing so you know it's where the 50 percentile is earning um, but the other thing to uh, acknowledge is it also includes um, thinking about the zeros we find lots of graduates um, not earning or earning very very low amounts below the tax threshold and I'll come back to what we think that shows us in a moment um, but nonetheless big earnings gaps between graduates and non-graduates so when people ask you about whether a degree is still worth it you know uh, yes basically on average but okay so this is a complex slide it takes a while to explain but it's worth it when you get there um, these are universities what we've done is we've taken all the universities uh, in the sector we've taken the median earnings of their students so where their 50th percentile student is earning and we've ranked them so these are the green dots so we go from left to right low earning institutions high earning institutions and all things in between but even that's not enough I mean if you look at the green dots or green circles we can see that there are obviously a bunch of uh, institutions over here from whom graduates are earning very very low wages um, remember that might be graduates doing higher education and further education colleges it might be graduates from universities in uh, very difficult labor market conditions such as Northern Ireland for example but as you move from left to right you also then get to this group of here with somewhat higher earning graduates notice they've got numbers on it you won't be able to see where the individuals numbers are but the point is that we can't name every institution in this data set we had to get permission from the specific institutions and we asked the Russell Group institutions on the grounds that everybody else was likely not to say yes. <laughs> so um, nowadays the government can do this and they can name everybody and they, indeed they're about to use this data and every institution will be named. But uh, HMRC and the student loan company were kind enough to give us access to this data and they felt that it was important that institutions gave their permission, which we agreed with, and these are the institutions that have done so. So, um, and it's not, you know, you can see all the numbers are up this end. So all the Russell Group institutions have, on average, higher earnings than the other institutions, thereby justifying our term, if you like, of calling them high status or high earning institutions. It doesn't necessarily say anything about teaching quality. I will come on to that in a minute. But it does say that their graduates are going to do very well in the labour market. So the next thing we wanted to say was, okay, well, that's fine. And actually... You know, there's obviously a big difference from the institutions up here where median earnings is 52, 53,000. Down here, median earnings nearer 15, 16. Clearly massive differences, but actually it's hiding an even greater difference. Because if you take an individual institution, and instead of picking out the person at the 50th percentile, you pick out the person at the 90th percentile, which are the grey triangles, or you pick out someone at the 20th percentile, which are the red squares, you get some sense of the difference in earnings from the same institution. So, I don't know, let's be controversial. Let's pick LSE, London School of Economics. Uh, the 17 up there, is, it is indeed telling you that the 90th percentile person from London School of Economics is earning about £175,000 per annum, uh, just over a decade after graduation. The median person from LSE is also earning pretty well. Uh, I think that comes in at uh, 52000 uh, per annum. But you can also see that just as all the other institutions, some of the graduates from London School of Economics have relatively low earnings. 
you're asking why are they so near zero? That is because we're including people who have no earnings or working part-time and very, very low earnings. And what we're saying is there's a whole bunch of graduates who, whether it's by force or by choice, are actually uh, very, very partially attached to the labour market and having very, very low earnings. And to our knowledge, this is relatively new. Obviously women, not obviously, but it has been true that female graduates have often spent quite a lot of time out of the labour market. And remember, we're capturing them at a time when they might be doing so. So we might have expected this pattern for women. Actually, this is men, sorry. And, you know, the pattern is not different. So female and male graduates looking very, very similar these days in terms of their, their career trajectories. Uh, what's looking different is if I show this uh, slide, slide for females, I've got a female slide in a minute, uh, all the numbers come down. So on average, women earn less. But this gives you some sense of what I'm talking about when I say that there's been increased variation in graduate earnings. So even to the point that within uh, the same institution, you can have wildly different outcomes. So obviously the next question is, which kinds of students get good outcomes from their degree? Uh, what we were really interested in was not so much the variation across institution, although that's interesting, uh, but why or whether there was a socioeconomic gap uh, amongst the graduates from the same institution. So I know that poor graduates go on to have lower earnings. It doesn't come as a surprise to me because they have lower A-level grades and they go to low-status institutions. So that's not a surprise. But what I was really interested in finding out was if they go to the same institution as everybody else, a high-status institution, for example, what is the earnings gap? Do they actually then earn the same as everyone else? Does it level the playing field in the sense that getting there is enough? Turns out not. So uh, here we have the raw gap. Uh, so poor students um, versus rich. And when I say that, I mean comparing the top fifth of graduates in terms of family income versus the rest. So those that are coming from the richest fifth earn 30% more if you're male, 24% more if you're female. But a lot of that is down to the fact that they're going to different universities because they've got different levels of prior attainment. But when we allow for all that, you get the gap down to 10%. So on average, taking two graduates from the same institution, from the same subject, the only thing different about them is their uh, socioeconomic status, the poor student will still be earning less by around 10%. And what we also found was that... Um, this gap is much, much bigger when you focus on those going to elite high-status institutions. So by the time you get up to some of these universities here, the gap for males, even when you're allowing for, for which institution they attend, is reaching 20 25%. So there's no doubt that, um, that, that higher education is not completely levelling the playing field, even for the poor students who do make it into these high-status institutions. So the other thing we found, which I think is quite relevant, is subject differences. Now, I think most people, certainly members of the public, think that uh, there might be differences in the kinds of subjects that rich and poor students choose. And obviously, to some degree, they're wrong. I mean, they're right. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you do find some subjects where there's a particular skew. But actually, across the piece, what's really interesting is they make very similar subject choices. We couldn't find, we expected to find, but we couldn't find massive differences in subject choice by socioeconomic background. Um, but what we did find was that the subject choice that you make makes a difference. There are big differences in earnings across different subjects, mostly because different subjects have different entry requirements. 
um, and three subject areas stand out. Creative arts students earn considerably less, as you might expect. It's a, arguably a vocation, a passion to do creative arts. Economics and medicine earn considerably more. So this gives you the same kind of sort of approach as before. The green circles are the subjects this time, ranked from left to right. Um, most of them, the average earnings by subject don't, doesn't vary hugely, but you've got some higher earning subjects around here. Um, engineering and technology, economics and medicine, and for women, education is also important. And then what you have is the, the variation. So the, the grey, uh, black triangles are, remember, the 90th percentile. And you can see, for example, the difference between medicine and economics. So economics is the second one in, massive earnings at the top, quite low earn earnings here, and a relatively high median. When you take medicine, it's much more compressed, and that's because most medics work in the public sector, wages are more controlled, the difference between the top and the bottom is far less. So you've got, uh, yes, there is a difference, these are the high earners, these are the low earners, but the gaps are much smaller compared to economics where they're massive. Um, and then you get down the bottom here. Now, the dots along the bottom, you might be wondering what they are. They're just to give a visual representation of um, how many students are taking each of those different subject areas. So a big dot implies larger number of students. So not many students here in the high-earning subject areas up here, but as you can see, lots down here, including creative arts, which is a low-earning subject. So we have rather a large number of students actually taking creative arts subjects and obviously their median earnings is quite low. So what do we conclude? Um, there are big earnings differences. I think we've kind of demonstrated that. So there's, and, and with 40 to 50% of the cohort going to university, depending on how you define it, we need to sort of stop talking about graduates as though they were just one thing and acknowledge that actually inequality within the graduate group is an increasing issue. Um, we also have to think about the fact that essentially prior achievement and their trajectory before university is what's driving a lot of this. So if you ask me still to this day, despite ministers not liking it, um, where should we put our money? What should we be worried about? I still say we should be worried about attainment in the school system because it's really hard to fix this problem entirely from the higher education end. Um, and as I said, the way you would do it is you would admit anybody and then remedially try and raise their attainment through their higher education. And that's, a, that's an approach, but you know, you've got to be honest about it. And the other thing we should be concerned about is that um, let's not sell the myth that higher education solves all the problems because we're still seeing this socioeconomic gap in outcomes. And I think some of those outcomes can be improved by policy action like um, supporting students from poor backgrounds during university, but some of them are much harder to deal with. Um, in particular, you know, the, the workings of the labour market and whether or not networks make a difference and more importantly that students who have wealthy parents probably get to spend the time needed to pick the right job. It's the luxury of not having to rush out into the labour market and get a job. And certainly my observation, even 20 years ago when I was coming through, those of us that had to get the job tomorrow, you end up taking the first job that comes your way. Um, students who had sort of more financial support or were living at home often used to take a much longer time to get into the labour market but then it would end up on a professional route. So um, in terms of implications of what all this shows us, I mean there's, this is relevant to the debate going on I guess in the election which is who, how do we want to pay for all this. Uh, my data doesn't tell you 
how you should pay for all this. It does tell you where the public subsidy is going. Um, and certainly I felt some sympathy for the uh, Green candidate the other day when he was trying to get the uh, BBC reporter to understand that the total debt that students have uh, is irrelevant. I mean, it's completely irrelevant because they're never going to repay that debt. So worrying about that debt is not really the issue. What matters is what proportion of the debt is being repaid by students each year and how we might manage that. Um, and at the moment, the estimate is, is that around about 40% of what students are borrowing is not going to be repaid because their earnings will be too low. And of course, depending on what happens in the labour market, that could be a much higher or much lower lower figure. But these data are useful to highlight the fact that we're subsidising obviously creative arts, but we're also subsidising um, institutions down the left-hand side of that graph. And that might be what we want to do. I mean, clearly the students in those institutions have lower levels of prior attainment and they're getting the same level of funding and they're not going to repay it as, as much. So that's where the subsidy is going. And we, we need to be sort of clear about that and decide who it is that we want to subsidise. Um, I think the other thing is we need to communicate with students better because there is an issue um, of students uh, being uh, somewhat confused about the routes through the system and in, particularly, uh, in particular not being clear that not all universities are the same, not all degrees are the same, um, but we have to be really careful with that messaging. On average a degree is still paying. So we can't go into the wider world and say, oh, well, you know, it's all complicated because students will find that very confusing. And I'm still quite stunned about how much of the debate is assuming that the labour market for graduates is so bad that this is not a good investment. There is no evidence to support that. Even if you just do it on something crude like unemployment rates, graduates are still better off. Um, now, some apprenticeships are also really good investments, don't get me wrong. So there are alternative high quality routes. But if you're thinking of uh, telling a student that they're going to do an MVQ level three versus try and pursue a route into higher education, even the bottom end of my higher education graph, the risk is still on the student with the going pursuing the level three because their unemployment rates are much higher. So I think we need to kind of communicate this in a way that students can, can understand. Um, and I think the other thing we need to think about uh, as universities is we have a lot of widening participation money at the moment. In fact, the government has recently thrown a lot more, as we know, at institutions. And sometimes it sort of makes my heart sink because we desperately need resource in the education system, but we don't need resource that's going to be spent on things that there's no evidence that it's going to make a difference. And at the moment, it's being spent in a rather scattergun way. And uh, we're not clear, given what I've just shown you, that supporting students in year 13 is going to make any difference to social mobility or the likelihood of a student going to university. Things that we might be able to do is we'll spend that money in is supporting students once they're into the institution. I think all universities should be looking very hard at their graduation rates, their uh, degree classification rates by socioeconomic back background and asking themselves hard questions about whether they're doing enough on that. But I also think we might start to think about what is the role of the university in helping students make the transition into the labour market? Uh, and as far as I can see when I go around to universities, the answer to that is very variable. Some universities see it as a core mission to try and help their students into the labour market. Other universities really kind of don't <laughs> sort of see it as an academic endeavour and our responsibility stops there. And I do think as a sector we need a bit of a debate about you know, what should we be doing at that end. And then in terms of improving the, the pipeline of students coming in, I'm afraid, you know, the resource would probably be better spent in the school system rather than in HE, much as we would like to spend on HE. So I'll stop there in case people have...
questions. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.